Thanks, Keith, for reading and uh, praying with us um, this morning. It was, uh, it was a pretty incredible miracle. Here's Peter and John. They're on their way into the temple. Uh, they see a man who had been crippled for his entire life carried in on a, on a, on a bedroll so that they, he could be set down so that he could beg, which was his job. Uh, he would beg every day at the temple gate looking for uh, alms so that he could survive. And this man hoped that Peter and John would give him some alms, so he asked for that. And then Peter looks him in the eye, tells him in the name of Jesus, take up your mat, get up, and walk. And this guy gets up. I, have you ever seen uh, like when a, a horse is born? And you know how they, they lay there and then they start kind of kicking their legs and then they, they sort of stumble to their feet and then they start moving around awkwardly and then eventually they start bouncing around. Have you ever seen that like on video? Go Google it or YouTube it or whatever. It's pretty funny. Uh, a horse learns to walk within like a minute of being born and once it knows how to walk, it just starts leaping and jumping and praising God. And I suggest that's 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 probably what it looked like for this guy. If he had been crippled from birth, he had never experienced walking before. The next thing you know, his legs are working and he starts to get up and he starts moving things around and maybe he's a little off balance and, and eventually he starts bouncing around too. And it was, it was incredible. The people were absolutely stunned by what they saw. But what's more stunning is that that event leads to yet another one of Peter's sermons. And in Acts chapter 3, Peter preaches powerfully to the people. The sign was meant to draw people's attention to the message, okay? Like Jesus' ministry is all about that. The apostles' ministry is all about that. These signs weren't done like magic tricks. These signs were done to get people's attention so that they would listen to the gospel presentation that they would give. Jesus would give, the apostles would give, so that they might believe and be saved. And it says in the opening verses of our passage that so many people believed that now the number of men had grown to 5,000. And you know what? It's interesting. I just thought of this, actually, while I was sitting there listening to Keith read. It's interesting that it, it, it specifically singles out men. And this is just a theory of mine. I haven't done my commentary work, okay? But down through church history... Um, men are slower to come to faith than women are. Men uh, are more resistant to the gospel than women are. And I bet you in your own personal experience, you've noticed that to some degree as well, that, that men can be very tough, very, very... Uh, they can put up walls. Maybe it's because men are, in, at least in our culture, are very afraid of, of admitting that they need anything. And then if you say, well, you need Jesus, that's just another thing to add to the list of things that they don't want to admit that they need. I don't know. But anyhow, it says men believed. Probably the church has grown now maybe even to like 15,000 or more people. It was unbelievable. And it just highlights the fact that what Jesus promised in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 uh, was coming true. He said, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it's already happening. 
But when we come to Acts 4, we see that actually that's not the only promise Jesus gave his disciples. There were other promises that he gave, and one of those promises is now coming to fulfillment as well. Now remember, Luke is the author of Acts, and therefore he's the guy who wrote the gospel according to Luke as well, so this is his two-part book. If you go back to the book of Acts, and some of you can if you have Bibles or apps, you can read this in Luke chapter 21, beginning at verse 12. Listen to this. This is Jesus speaking to his disciples, making a promise to them. Luke 21, beginning at verse 12. Before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you the mouth of wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. Stick a pin in that one. Not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. Now, that prediction comes true, in part at least, not fully, but in part much of that prediction comes true here in Acts chapter 4. And we are going to think about this together. You can see the sermon note. Oh, there's the rest of the announcements on the back of the bulletin. I draw your attention to them for later. Right now, I just draw your attention to the sermon notes where you'll see that we're going to look at three things. We're going to see uh, opposition to the gospel. We're going to see Peter's response to that opposition. And then we're going to see the source of his courage. So, Let's begin with opposition to the gospel. I want to I lay before you a fundamental principle of the Christian faith. This is a fundamental principle of the Christian faith. Whether you've been a Christian for decades or whether you're exploring Christianity and you're just here to check it out today, you need to know this. Christianity is a fight. Christianity is a fight. If the church is faithful, if Christians are faithful, they will inevitably experience conflict and opposition. It is utterly unavoidable. Here's Peter. He heals a cripple who had been crippled since his birth, you would think that that's a good thing. No? Yeah. And he, yeah, I'm not going to dwell on that. It's obvious that that's a good thing. 
And then he preaches this good news about Jesus coming to take away our sin and take away the condemnation that we deserve because of it. And he's come to give us new life and we need not fear death anymore. Jesus has come to do all this thing. And there's all kinds of converts who are finding their lives transformed and and finding the burden of guilt lifted from them and the burden of fear lifted from them because these are pagans who believed in some kind of netherworld or afterworld and had no clue where their place would be in it. And they've been free from the, all of this, but then what does it say in verses 1 to 3? As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed. It's a great word. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead and they arrested them and they put them in custody until the next day. You get this voice from heaven, right? Peter speaks the voice from heaven. Salvation is found in the resurrected Jesus. And immediately you get a voice from hell, a response. And that voice says to the voice from heaven, shut up. Verse 18, so they called them and charged them, not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Silence. That's what the voice of hell wanted. It wanted to silence the voice from heaven. It wanted to silence this good news that was being proclaimed. And that's always the case. You see, there are real spiritual forces behind the world that you can see with your physical eyes that are at war with one another. And every human being is a participant in that war. You are a participant either with the voices of hell or you are a participant with the voices of heaven. There is no neutrality. There is no Switzerland. There is a spiritual battle happening in which you and I are taken up. Now let me unpack this a little bit further with you for a minute. In verses 5 and 6, we read this. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. Now, you may know some of these names. Three of them are very important, certainly. Annas, Caiaphas, and the chief of the temple guard. Now, these... These guys, uh, where are we here? The chief of the temple guard. Now what do I say? Oh yeah. These were the most powerful men in the city of Jerusalem. These three men were the most powerful men in the city of Jerusalem. And in fact, these three men together, they were the ones who conspired in order to get Jesus put to death. And Peter knows that because in verse 10, Peter says this, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, Peter knows that they have put him to death. Now, Peter has been bold before. Remember Acts 2, we looked at his sermon before the crowd. He was bold before that crowd. There's this huge crowd in Jerusalem for a big party, and Peter tells them, you crucified Jesus, but Jesus was raised from the dead by the Father, and now every knee must bow to him, and he's very, very bold. But those were lay people. Now, 
there was danger because it could have turned into a mob and maybe they all picked up stones and stoned him. But, but right now, Peter is standing in front of people who actually have the political and legal power to convict him. These are the power brokers in the city who have the clout to make things happen. And Peter is just as bold in front of them. He saw them, you know. He saw He was in the courtyard when Jesus was on trial and he saw who was at the meeting, he saw how they behaved, he saw what they said, and now he's on trial in front of them. Just as Jesus predicted in Luke chapter 21. They will bring you before the synagogues and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And here is Peter experiencing the very thing that Jesus said would happen. The point is this. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, truly a follower of Jesus Christ, in some way, shape, or form, you must expect opposition to your devotion to Jesus Christ. You must expect that in some way, shape, or form, you will have to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ. Now, that's, that's not popular in any culture. But what's unique about Western culture is that we, we think in Western culture that suffering is something that we must at all cost avoid and should never, ever, ever experience. Other cultures expect suffering, they understand that life has suffering, and they, it's not that they're looking forward to suffering and saying, oh, I can't wait to suffer, but they believe that it will come and they gird themselves, they prepare themselves for it. It is my belief, frankly, this is a little bit of an aside, I admit, but I'm just going to spit it out. The Western church, the biggest need that the Western church has right now is a robust theology of suffering. Because in our culture, we have come to believe that we don't need to, we should never have to suffer. And it's rooted in our autonomous, individualistic uh, philosophies, and I don't have time to get into all that, but if you think about safe spaces on college and university campuses, those of you who know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. You think of doctor-assisted suicide, you think of abortion, you think of helicopter parenting. It runs the gamut. All these things are rooted in a belief that we think that suffering is wrong in all cases and in all circumstances. It is some kind of violation and we absolutely must be protected from it. And to suffer for Jesus, if it ever happens, we're absolutely shocked by it. We're so shocked by it that we think, you know, either, either there's something wrong with me or there's something wrong with God. And yet here were good men, law-abiding men, upstanding men, who had healed people, who had preached the good news. They're not shocked at all. And you know, other Christians around the world are not shocked at all when they suffer for what they believe. Think of the, it's, it's a few years old now, but it was, it was an unbelievable story. You remember the Egyptian Christians? There were 21 men who on video were put in orange jumpsuits, hoods put on their heads, 
put on their knees, lined up, 21 of them. And radical Islamic terrorists stood in front of them and said, you want to live? You denounce Jesus Christ and you, uh, and you embrace Allah. Every single one of them said no. They refused to renounce Jesus Christ and every single one of them was beheaded. And more recently, some of you have heard of the Early Reign Covenant Church in China, Pastor Wang Li, who in September preached a, a sermon calling on the communist government and the general secretary of China, the most powerful man in China, to repent and, and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. Four months later, he was arrested and many members of his church were arrested and the entire church was shut down. If you are here and you are wondering about Christianity, I just want to make sure you might be thinking, boy, this is a bad sales pitch, buddy, for your belief system. But let me tell you, if anybody comes along and tries to offer you an easier life in the name of Christianity, you're getting counterfeit money. Because you see, the gospel everywhere offers a better life. Oh, it's a better life. Eternal life sounds a lot better than non-eternal life, doesn't it? And the benefits of knowing Jesus so that you are free from guilt, you're free from fear, you're free from shame, you're free from the fear of death, uh, knowing that as you get up every day you have meaning and purpose in this life, knowing that you have a hope for a future, all these things make life absolutely better. But never, never, never does the Bible anywhere say that your life gets easier when you're a follower of Jesus. Opposition comes from everywhere. We're going to see it in the book of Acts. Right now, we've got opposition coming from outside the church, Acts chapter 4. When we get to Acts chapter 5, you see that opposition comes from inside the church with Ananias and Sapphira. And then in Acts chapter 6, you discover that there's opposition even within the church through division and that kind of thing. But the reality is, is that the more that Jesus' power is unleashed in you, as a person who follows Jesus Christ, the more that you are empowered by the Holy Spirit to boldly speak and stand up for the truth of the gospel, the more that that power is unleashed in a community that lives alternatively uh, against the ways of the world and says, says the ways of the world are not in line with God and not the way to human flourishing, you can be sure that you will experience more trouble. And here's why. Verse 12 There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other, other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That verse obliterates our individualistic, autonomous, Western worldview. See, our worldview wants to say that I'm the one who will interpret what is right and wrong for me, who is in charge and who ought not to be in charge and how I ought to live. I will navigate my way through this world. And this statement, which is just one among many in the Bible, absolutely obliterates that and says you are not an autonomous self and I'm not an autonomous self either. And it makes unbelievers very angry because you sound like a very closed-minded Christian. If you're a Christian, you're very closed-minded and bigoted and, and you think you know it all when the, rest of the, when the world is a big and, and complicated place. So you look like that to, to non-believers. But you know what? 
it's a problem for believers too. I was just talking to someone before church who let me know that at the Vancouver prayer breakfast, so a lot of cities and provinces, they do these prayer breakfasts, breakfast, right, once a year. At the Vancouver prayer breakfast, a BC MP stood up and said, specifically read a portion of scripture, I don't know which portion of scripture, they read a portion of scripture and then they stood up and they specifically said, I am a Christian, I am a follower of Jesus Christ, but I understand very, very clearly that, that Jesus is a way to God, but not the way to God. There are many ways to God, and I have chosen to believe that Jesus is the way to God, but others will choose to believe another way. This is an MP standing up who claimed to be a Christian, standing up at a prayer breakfast saying that. And I have count, talked to many Christians who, who struggle with the idea that, that Jesus is the only way to God for their brother or their sister or their kids. We all need to find our own path. But Jesus says, no, you don't need to find your own path. The whole point of me coming was to show you I am the path. All the searching, all the wondering, all the struggling, you, you can lay it down, you can give it up, you can just rest in the fact that God himself made a path to you. We're all trying to fight our way up the mountain to find salvation and to find meaning and to find transcendence. And Jesus comes down and says, stop it! Why work so hard? I've come to show you and hand it to you on a silver platter. Because that's who I am. Look, either Jesus is radically better than everything else, or he's worse than everything else. That's the logic of the gospel. When a man comes into the world and says, I am God in the flesh, and I have come to live for you and die for you, and, and I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me, either that guy is better. I'm sorry, but let's just be logical here. Either he's better than Muhammad, he's better than Buddha, he's better than Hinduism, he's better than the Torah, he's better, better, better than everything. Read the book of Hebrews. Or he's worse. Because how dare he say that you must come to the Father except through me. When we live in a world that has multiple truths and multiple paths to God. This is why, this is the crux of the matter. This is it. This is the thing that gets everybody's knickers in a knot. How uplifting, hey? So, okay, how do we respond to that? Well, here's how Peter responds to this opposition. This opposition is inevitable, and Peter responds to it this way. <laughs> he does the same thing he does every other time. He starts preaching. Uh, he preaches three sermons in three chapters. He witnesses, whether it's in the city or in the temple courts or now in front of the mafia in charge of the city. He tells them the gospel. And he says in the beginning in verse 9, if we're being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders. Remember, they're the leadership. 
religious leaders, which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. You know, the shockingly simple but effective way to grow the church is the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We rack our heads with ministry strategies to make non-Christians open to the gospel, and I do it too, I know, we do it. But every strategy at its core, at its root, it will only be ultimately successful if it has this, the gospel in it. Do you know that's why we have Mark already? There's, not, there's like 100 people here right now. We're not, that, we're not that big. You know, on average, we have anywhere from 130 to 160 people in church, somewhere around there. So we're averaging 150 attendees or whatever. Our membership is way lower than that. That's one of the cool things about this place is that we have way more people here than we have members here. Most churches, you have like way more members than you have people in, a, in worship. We have the flip side of that, which is kind of cool. But we are not a big church. And here we're trying to find the money to have two pastors already. Why? Why? You could put money into buildings. You could put money into programs. You could put money into advertising. You could put money into events. And we're putting the bulk of our money into people who proclaim the gospel. Why? Because that's the engine. Whether it's here on Sundays when I'm barking at you guys, or when you're in a small group discipleship meeting with Mark or in a one-on-one -on -one counseling session with him or when you're sitting with people around bowls of soup at Soup and Social or whatever, we want people who embody the gospel and who share the gospel to be what the world, what Dundas and what the culture sees in Grace Valley Church. Because this is the thing that has always been the thing. It's the message. Do you know, like, are you not struck? Are you not struck by how Peter, he, raises, he, he heals a cripple and everybody's freaking out. Peter barely mentions the cripple in his sermon and in his talk to the leadership uh, in, in Jerusalem. It's not about the cripple. It's about Jesus. Peter does that each and every time, and you'll see all the apostles do that. And, and you know, when Peter is told to be quiet, when he is told to shut up, he, he basically says he won't stop. In verses 18 and 19, it's very interesting, look at this. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. And Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. He doesn't say, uh, you try to shut me up and I will file a complaint with the Human Rights Commission. He says, you guys are the leadership. You guys decide what is right and what is wrong. But know this, we cannot stop declaring what we know to be true. I'm not challenging your human laws. I'm not. But I'm willing to take and face the consequences of believing the truth in the face 
and being on the wrong side of your human laws. I, I mentioned Wang Li uh, a couple minutes ago. This is an excerpt from that sermon he preached in September. And this is absolutely astounding. You've got to understand, okay, this is in a culture, you think you're being watched, like with your, your phone is listening to you and, and uh, Google is always on and monitoring you and stuff, and it's just try, trying to sell you stuff, right? But in China, you are being monitored your entire life, all the time, and it's for the purpose, now I would say in the West it's for the same purpose to some degree, but let's not get confused here. In China, it's for the, for the purpose of shaping your thinking, controlling you. And this guy stands up in his church. This, this sermon is videotaped, and it's going to go on YouTube. You can get it on YouTube even right now. That's how I found it and transcribed it. Listen to what he says. And he's talking to his church. <laughs> you, you know, you got it easy, okay? Listen to this. Why are you still caught up in lies and malice? He says to his church, it's because you're afraid of persecution. It's because you don't believe that persecution is a blessing from God. For God says, the one who takes up his cross and follows me, who renounces all he has in this life, shall also, what in this life? He shall receive a hundredfold and eternal life. A hundredfold of what in this life? One of the important things our Lord Jesus Christ mentions is persecution. In that list of blessings is included the persecution of the world against us. So let me put it this way. What does Paul teach us? When truth and justice prevail in our country, we must speak honestly. We must live upright lives. We must speak edifying words. And when truth and justice wane, we must speak honestly. We must act and speak with the same courage and uprightness as before. When we are not being persecuted we spread the gospel. When persecution comes, we continue to spread the gospel. When we are not being persecuted, we go street preaching. And when persecution comes, we continue street preaching. If we are talking about a president, we declare he is a sinner. And if we're talking about a general secretary, we declare that he is a sinner. Now listen, he goes on. We believe we have the responsibility to tell Xi Jinping, that's the general secretary of China, that he is a sinner. This government is leading, he is leading, has sinned greatly against God, for it is persecuting the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if he does not repent, he will perish. We declare that there is still a way to escape for an evil man like him, but there is only one way out, and that is the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. He must believe in Jesus Christ who died and rose for him. We say this, because we truly believe that this is for his good. We truly believe that this is good for all authorities in power and for every government worker. We do not want to see them go to hell. We do not want to see them and their descendants cursed by, by God. We long to see them turn from their wicked ways, so we must call them to repentance. This is how we give them the grace of the gospel. If we do not experience persecution, how can we give them the grace of the gospel? What are the means of giving them this gospel grace? What means did Jesus give us grace? He did it through Gethsemane, through Golgotha. 
What means must the Chinese church today use to give the grace of the gospel to a society that doesn't know the gospel, that resists and persecutes the church of our Lord? We must walk the path of the cross. We must boldly preach the way of the kingdom of God. And, and here's the final line, we must pay the price for doing this. You young people, you decide in your own head and heart if that's you. You young people, I want to ask you a question. Is there anything worth dying for? Is there anything more important than your personal contentment that is worth dying for? Is there anything bigger than you that is worth dying for? Now, you may not like the question, but many of you young people are asking this one right now. Is there anything worth living for? Why am I here? What's the point of it all? My life sucks. It's not as good as Jimmy's life as I see on Instagram or Sally's life that I see on Facebook. Oh, I guess young people don't use Facebook, but what do you use? Instagram, Snapchat, stories. And you're wondering, what's the point of it all? Why am I even here? If I were dead and gone, nobody would even notice. What's the point of living but don't you understand that if you believe that there is something worth dying for, then you also believe that there is something worth living for. There is a purpose to your life. There's a reason for your being here and now. And it is big and it is scary and it is glorious. But if you've ever watched Lord of the Rings, it's worth it. Look at Frodo and Sam going on this quest. It's not an adventure, it's a quest. They had a thing that they were going to do. Their task was to destroy the ring. And it brought them through tremendous highs and terrible lows. They had experiences of joy that were beyond their wildest dreams, and they had experiences of terror that they never thought they could, they could handle. But when they came through the other side, they were transformed, and they, what awaited them, at least for Frodo, who went there, was the Grey Havens. The place of bliss. Across, well, the Grey Havens was where they went, and then they went across the sea. But you're sitting here as a young person, and you're thinking to yourself, well, what's worth living for? I don't know what's worth living for, but if there is something that is worth dying for, it's also worth living for. And you have been offered the same quest to declare that Jesus Christ is the King of the universe. And he loves you and he delights in you and he cherishes you. And every day when you wake up and you wonder, is there any reason for it all? Is there anybody who cares? You can know that that king of the universe knows you intimately, loves you completely, and is so for you that he will part the Red Seas, as we sang, so that you can walk through it for his glory.
Peter knew there was something worth dying for because there was something worth living for, and that's what we gotta gotta come to finally as we close. Where did Peter get this courage? Where does Wang Yi get this courage to stand firm? I gotta admit, I'm a I think I'm a doughy Christian. That's what I call Christians who don't have that kind of steel in their spine, kind of strength in their faith. I'm afraid I'm a doughy Christian. You know, like if you, like you push me, I'm soft, which I'm, I'm doughy, period. But I think I'm a doughy Christian. These are, these Peter, John, Wang Lee, there is a strength in their faith. Where does that come from? And the answer is embedded in verse 20. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. I'm sure Peter's knees were knocking as he stood in front of that Sanhedrin because he knows they can kill me. But then he remembered, I saw him die. I saw him rise. I heard him promise. We'll see this again. When Stephen gets stoned, he looks up into heaven and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of the throne of God. Paul, in Acts 23, when he's facing conviction, he says, I am a Pharisee descended from Pharisees. I stand on trial. Why? Because of the hope of the resurrection of the dead. I was at the Grace network conference earlier this week, or last week, I guess now, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Dan McDonald, pastor of Grace Toronto Church, great guy, very thoughtful, wise, insightful man, uh, knows a lot about evangelism and that kind of thing, and he, he's seeing a shift in the culture, and he says, you know, um, I, can, I can sit down with a non-Christian, and, and I can take on all their objections to the Christian faith, and I got all the answers, I've read the books, I've studied hard, I know them, etc., And he says, but people aren't listening for that anymore. What they're listening for is conviction. What they're listening for is hearing people who in their bones believe something so certainly that they cannot bend to every whim of the culture's shifting and he said that when he talks to people and he he argues with very bright people who have all kinds of objections to the faith he's begun to just say this 2,000 years ago a guy rose from the dead what do you do with that if you believe it here's what you do with that you root it so deeply in yourself that you realize that Jesus, who is now untouchable, he is the ultimate avenger, he has extended that untouchableness to you so that your fears are wiped away. Listen, listen to John Chrysostom. This is an early church father. He was brought before the empress Eudocia. I don't know how to say her name. This is in... Uh, around 360 or 370 A.D. or so. And she threatened to banish him because he kept insisting to preach uh, the Christian gospel. And he said to this, you cannot banish me. 
for this world is my father's house. So she says, but then I will kill you. He says, no, you can't kill me for my life is hidden with Christ in God. Then I'll take away your treasures. Mm, You can't. My treasure is in heaven and my heart is there also. I will drive you away from your friends and you will have no one left. You can't. I have a friend in heaven from whom you cannot separate me. I defy you for there is nothing you can do to harm me. They remembered what they had seen and what they had heard. Wang Yi was not at the empty tomb physically and personally when Jesus rose from the dead, but he has seen the risen Lord. How? Through the word and through the spirit. 